to my fellow Oklahomans, I am honored to stand before you today and begin my fourth year as your governor. Okay, I am here with uh, Frontier reporter Kayla Branch. Uh, Kayla, you and I, we just watched the 2022 State of the State address. Uh, very wide-ranging about, I don't know, what did you say, 30 or 45-minute speech? Yeah, yeah, um, about. The governor, he touched on a lot of topics. I think we'll stick to the key, you know, three or four main topics that, that he uh, covered today. Um, you were up there kind of, I guess, right behind the governor, uh, mm-hmm. right above and behind the governor today. Press what, gallery. What was your um, your main takeaway? I mean, what was the thing that stood out to you the most today um, from the governor's speech? Yeah, well, I'm always really interested in uh, what the governor is talking about when it comes to school choice. And that has been a leading policy priority for him for at least the last two years. And one that he has had big agreement with legislative leaders on. I mean, considering, again, over the last two years, his relationship with legislative leaders, it's been uh, very rocky at times. And so it's been interesting to watch him really hone in on that school choice issue um, and and agree with legislative leaders on that and, and actually have, you know, some policy um, come out of that, like last legislative session when um, lawmakers, you know, increased um, scholarship funding for private schools and allowed, you know, student transfers to take place much more easily. Yeah, the education um, was probably, out of the whole speech, probably the topic that he, he spoke about the most. Uh, I mean, it kind of went all over the place from um, ways to fund uh students leaving public schools and to be able to go to private schools and afford books and tuition and things like that. Um, He talked about the same thing that Ryan Walters talked about a week or two ago. Not a lot of specifics, but about uh, teacher raises where some teachers would maybe make $100,000 or more to keep them in the classroom rather than uh, taking administrative roles. And again, not a lot of specifics about that, but you know, we'll see where that goes. Um, He sort of criticized the state's ranking uh, or education rankings, talked about how students were often not prepared uh, mm-hmm. in, in different uh, aspects of being prepared for college. Uh, kind of, you know, he touched on a lot of different things, not just uh, teachers unions, I think weakening teachers unions, but I thought was sort of an unusual uh, sort of aside that he threw, he threw into that speech. But um, yeah, talk some more about some of the education, some of the, the Oklahoma Empowerment Act, I know uh, specifically he, that he mentioned. Um, talk yeah. about some of that. Yeah, so the Oklahoma Empowerment Act is a bill that was introduced this session by um, the Senate pro tem Greg Treat. Um, And that bill essentially would give each student that, you know, qualifies and wants to take advantage of that um, their own personal little funding account that they could spend on qualifying expenses, which could be tuition to a private school um, or tuition to a non-public school online program, which is a little vague. Um, it could be books or tutoring, different things like that. And really the idea um, is that instead of, and Stitt said this in his speech, instead of funding systems, you fund individual students so that their parents and their families can, you know, make uh, individualized choices for them so they can go to the best schools that they, um, you know, will serve their needs. And Stitt highlighted a student that uh, had taken advantage of private scholarship funding to go to um, an Oklahoma Baptist um, kind of Bible private school. 
We talked about that, how that, um, you know, best fit that student's needs and that um, most students uh, or all students really in the state should have opportunities to do that if that's what's best for them. Um, but, you know, we also hear from uh, Democratic lawmakers and uh, other you know educators um, that have talked about the harms of taking away um, funding meant for, you know, public schools and kind of funneling it into private schools and how for some students who, you know, are in rural areas um, or would lack transportation um, to go you know, drive 45 minutes to go to a private school or maybe don't have internet access to go to an online private school, you know, whatever it may be, um, it really creates this divide of access to quality education because as you take away these, you know, f- these funds from public schools and divert them to private schools, um, you're hurting the students that are left behind. Yeah, it was interesting too. I went and read the bill, uh, Treat's bill, um, after he brought it up today in the speech. And one line that stood out to me, and it was sort of a a topic that um, the governor went back to uh, many times in, in, uh, when he was talking about the education topic mm-hmm. was sort of an increase uh, in privatization in many ways. I mean, talking about, you know, sending kids who would be in a public school, funding a way for them to, to uh, attend a private school instead. In, in the bill itself, it, I'll just read from it here. It says, the bill allows the office of the state treasurer to contract with a private financial management firm or other private organization to administer the program. And so I think that's something also that um, especially Democratic lawmakers will be wary of is, you know, you're essentially creating another private industry to uh, oversee public dollars to some degree. And I mean, I think that's, that is, it'll be interesting to see what different route uh, this takes, I think, throughout the session. Because there's a lot of, There's a lot of interest on both sides, I think, in seeing how this uh, plays out. Well, and especially after everything that happened with, you know, the Epic um, schools and and all those audits and the mismanaging of of public dollars there, you know, millions of of public dollars that were spent in ways that our state auditor has said were, you know, uh, extremely illegal and problematic. Right, very Uh, recent headlines about Epic just in the last week or two. Exactly. And the governor has been, you know, there's been criticism of him uh, since all the, the Epic news has been going on for the last couple of years that he has not really leaned into that uh, and, and I think you know been um, outspoken against epic it's taken I think a lot for him to come out and, and um, talk about you know issues there or, or um, an audit of, of their finances so I think people have been really looking at that and have been concerned even like about what you just said uh, and and creating another private entity that will have something to do with public dollars and and we heard from uh, one a democratic rep- uh, representative who had said you know there wasn't much in that bill about uh, oversight of those pi- uh, private entities and making sure that they're spending the money that they're supposed to be um, so it's we'll see what happens yeah um i know that um going on to a different topic there was something that, that you spoke to me about after the speech was the elimination of the grocery sales tax, which mm-hmm. has some bipartisan support. I mean, I think there's different mm-hmm. ideas for how maybe it would be structured, but um, tell people a little bit about what the what eliminating the grocery sales tax means. Like what the, I mean, maybe it's something that people don't even think that much about. We're so accustomed to it just existing that you don't right. think about what it would mean if it went away, but also some of the different maybe ideas for, for what that might mean and what the, some of the impact might be. Yeah, yeah. So Oklahoma is one of just 13 states that has a sales tax on our groceries, which is kind of surprising. I thought, you know, lived in Oklahoma my life. I just, right, like you said, like I was just like, oh yeah, yeah, this isn't going to be $5. It's going to be, you know, something else. Uh, 
Uh, and so, um, and the, the sales tax on groceries doesn't just go to the state, it also goes to um, local, like city governments as well. Um, but the state has a 4.5% tax on groceries. And um, Democrats for years have been pointing to that sales tax and saying that, you know, it's regressive, which means that it's going to impact um, people that are low income more than it will people who are high income. Because if you're spending, you know, the, or a larger percentage of your take home pay on groceries, you're going to be spending a larger percentage of your take home pay on those sales taxes as well. Um, and so people have been pointing at that. And now I think for the first time, there's really this bipartisan, you know, Republican support for eliminating that um, sales tax as well, um, which I guess comes at the heels of them uh, for the last couple of years, really focusing in on cutting taxes um, and being successful at that. So there's bipartisan support. Um, and people have talked about, you know, we're in the middle of extremely high inflation coming out of the pandemic. People are really struggling. We need to give um, working families, uh, low-income families, uh, relief. And so that's where people have been kind of focusing in on um, when it comes to tax cuts this year. And there are a couple different plans. Um, House Minority Leader Emily Virgin, she has a plan that would phase out the um, grocery sales tax over the next couple of years. And um, there's another plan from um, Senate Pro Tem Greg Treat that um, would also do away with the, the sales tax. And, but I think there are some kind of longer term concerns when it comes to phasing that out, you know, as Oklahoma has been cutting taxes last year, it was the uh, corporate uh, income tax, individual income taxes, we're cutting those, and we are uh, lowering our long term, you know, tax revenue, our income for the state. Um, and lawmakers have said, you know, oh, this is a great time to cut taxes, because the state is flush with all of this federal COVID-19 relief money. So this is a, a great time to do that. Uh, but that money will go away. Um, we're going to have to spend it and we're going to have to spend it on, um, you know, very specific projects. The federal government was extremely clear when they said that, you know, you can't cut taxes and use this federal funding to make up for that. You have to spend it on other types of projects. Um, so I think it's, uh, as Democrats have pointed out previously, you know, um, there can be some short-term thinking when it comes to uh, tax relief and cutting taxes and not, um, that long-term view of what's going to happen, you know, 10 years from now. And in Oklahoma, it's extremely difficult to raise taxes. You have to have 75%, uh, you know, of both chambers agreeing to this and the governor to sign on. It's extremely difficult to increase those tax cuts once they happen. Yeah. So you could be in a situation where you run out of both the federal relief dollars and sales tax <laughs> revenue or the right. tax revenue at the same time. And then not be able to get right. either one back. And the grocery sales tax brings in, I believe, about $300 million, um, each year. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where that goes because that's obviously something that um, is a very easy thing to sell to the public, mm -hmm. you know, the idea of eliminating. Yeah, people are usually very supportive yeah. of their taxes being cut, but then they're also unhappy when, you know, their public schools don't have paper sure. for the printers or, you know, updated Fire departments books. lose a fire it, truck and right. they can't replace it. And, it, yeah, there's, it'll be interesting to see the path that that takes. And like you said, there's multiple um, different options. It'll be interesting to see which one sort of uh, takes hold. Uh, another thing that I w thought we'd talk about is um, medical marijuana. That's a, a topic, uh, an interesting time in Oklahoma, just because of we're now finally starting to see, I think, the, a wider range of the outcomes of the the bill as it was as it was passed. I mean, as the state question was passed, um, as and it's given more and more people time to either. Whatever that means, opening a dispensary, getting their license, operating a, a grow facility. Um, we had a story two weeks, two or mm -hmm. three weeks ago that uh, Cliff wrote 
um, about about some of how how people have sort of looked at Oklahoma, looked at the law, and tried to find um, little points so they could sort of elbow in and take advantage of the way the law was written. Right. And the governor spoke about not that specifically, but sort of that uh, to a degree in his speech today. Sort of um, how the bill was obviously it was the bill. The state question was written in a very specific way by a very specific group of people for a very specific outcome, and. It was passed, and because of state questions, very hard to go in. I mean, people have been working hard to fi- find ways to go back in and, and alter it. Um, but I think now, because it's been on the books for long enough, we're starting to see, you know, the the full outcome of that bill. And so t- talk a little bit about what um, what the governor spoke about in regards to medical marijuana and sort of where his mind is as we move into whatever this is, year three or year four of it being mm-hmm. legalized in the state. Yeah, yeah. So I think the governor's head is where a lot of conservative, and not even necessarily conservative, but rural uh, lawmakers are in Oklahoma. Um, essentially what we've seen is this explosion of growers and um, dispensaries. And uh, because we have such a low barrier to entry, it's very cheap compared to other states. Um, There is a lot of illegal activity that has been going on. We've seen uh, the State Bureau of Investigation, you know, doing busts um, of these different grow facilities. And I think there have been some concerns, too, about um, foreign land ownership, people coming in and, you know, buying up a bunch of of Oklahoma's land. Uh, And so a a lot of these folks that represent these rural areas and state, as he talked about today, you know, they're um, big on Oklahoma is a law and order state. And so we need to crack down on this illegal activity and these, I believe, state called them foreign bad actors that are coming in and causing problems in our state um, and, and um, have turned our medical marijuana industry into something that has this, you know, illegal component to it. Um, so that was definitely one of his top priorities was bolstering enforcement and um, law enforcement activities around illegal medical marijuana um, facilities and growers and operators. Um, which isn't surprising. I, there are a lot of bills that's going to be one of the top legislative priorities, you know, outside of Stitt's priorities. That's something that a lot of lawmakers are already working on. Um, but I also noted what you said about how he kind of framed the issue as um, a problem with state questions, and which is, is interesting because over the last couple of years, as you know, medical marijuana was passed and as Medicaid expansion and, and um, you know, criminal justice reforms have gone through successfully that state question process, we've seen these Republican lawmakers really target the state questions and and say that people were, you know, misled, essentially, that Oklahomans never would have voted for this if they knew what would happen. Um, but, you know, at the time in 2018, when uh, medical marijuana passed, um, it passed by a margin of 120,000 votes. You know, that's a pretty good margin. Um, so it was definitely interesting to hear him, him talk about that. Yeah, the state question aspect of it was really interesting to me for a few reasons. I mean, we have, like you said, we have seen this uh, divide in the recent sort of high-profile state questions between the idea that it's these are just the cities that are passing these and that they're overriding the will of uh, rural Oklahoma. And if you go back to when state was first elected, I mean, he was elected because of support from rural Oklahoma. I mean, that was that was the difference in mm-hmm. in what sent him, you know, to the to the governor's mansion where he doesn't live, but. Um, <laughs> And so it, it it was interesting for, to for, to hear him bring it up in that regard because it, he does owe a lot to mm-hmm. rural Oklahoma and um, I think you know if you live in a city if you live in Tulsa or Oklahoma City or, or wherever you your um, experience with medical marijuana is going to be seeing dispensaries everywhere 
And if you live in more rural parts of Oklahoma, your experience is not, you're going to see dispensaries because they're everywhere. everywhere. <laughs> but you, and if you're in rural Oklahoma, you're going to see the grow houses and you're mm-hmm. going to see there is impact um, on Oklahoma in terms of what that does to cities, power grids, yeah. water. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of issues that have come up because of sort of the way that it's not that it's an unregulated industry, but it's an industry where the state question was written in a way to, it was a very boom industry mm-hmm. where the regulations are either handcuffed or just can't keep up because of the very nature of the way that the process works. You can get a card if you want, no matter what, you can open up a dispensary anywhere. There's a, you know, abandoned Payless shoe store. You can open, you know <laughs> right, what I mean? Right, right. It's so, very easy. Yeah. It's hard to keep up. That's what we saw the story that Cliff wrote was it's hard for enforcement to keep up with what's going on. And so on the one hand, he's saying it's a state question. It was written poorly. People got screwed over. Uh, we need to crack down on this. And then also, Oklahoma's open for business, and it needs to be, you know, right. and well, this is the way that, you know, that the that business has taken hold mm-hmm. in Oklahoma. So it's just interesting to see the sort of interplay between these two ideas of his and how um, how he views medical marijuana. I remember asking him when he was running for governor, one of the first questions was, would he support medical marijuana? Mm-hmm. And that was when the polling showed that it was favored, but it was favored in a way that you didn't know. Is it just city people responding or is mm-hmm. it, how does that work? And, um, and he was lukewarmly not against it fully, <laughs> I think was how I'd put it. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so it's interesting to see now, you know, getting ready to, to finish up his first term, just sort of where his head is. Um, I think Oklahomans, like I said, have gotten a better picture now of like what that, uh, law uh, what that state question ultimately mm-hmm. meant. Um, and it will be interesting to see how it is reined back in because of, you know, I mean, if you think about the grocery sales tax going away, like, you know, you're going to have to replace that with something. And once it is hard, it's hard to um, put a new tax on the books, but once there is a new source of tax revenue, it's also hard to give that up, especially if you are willingly trying to give away the grocery sales right. tax. I mean, it's it's not comparative number wise but it's money that you know that wouldn't exist if you right. cut down on it harder well and and the state has already benefited from its booming medical marijuana industry i mean i think it was just last year that uh, lawmakers um, decided that they were going to take some uh, specific streams of uh, medical marijuana funding in addition to what was already being taken and directing that just toward education i mean and it's i think the or one or the the second largest industry in the state since you know that passed. I mean, it's definitely been um, a boom. And it's interesting what you said about Stitt's perspective on the issue when he was first running for office and when he first you know got into office. Uh, and there definitely was, I think. And, and had to be for it to pass the goodwill of rural voters to really, um, and I think a lot of them looked at it, it's medical marijuana, it's needed, you know, treatment for people, easily accessible, it's a good thing. Uh, and now, you know, we've got uh, a couple state questions that are being run right now on recreational marijuana. And I think that that goodwill from rural voters is at this point gone. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know that those are going to have as good of a chance to pass. Yeah, and that's, you know, what essentially they, you can, there is such a low bar to getting access to marijuana in Oklahoma that it is essentially recreational I mean, for the yeah. most part. It is rec- Medi- Medical in name only. Yeah, and I've heard people talk about it. it's almost, a, I won't say the whole thing is a perfect system, but like the, the, uh, access to a medical marijuana card, mm-hmm. it, it, it creates uh, sort of a perfect system in Oklahoma where 
it is essentially recreational where if you want to ha- get a card you can get one but you're still it's there's that the cost is up front you're paying that cost up front you're paying you know however two hundred dollars or hundred dollars to the state to get your card um wherein just a straight recreational um area you that, yeah. there's no you, you know just skip it. you're just skipping it and walking into a building and getting it so yeah um it's yeah it's interesting i think you know, talking about, he pointed to other states like Arkansas, I think, and California in terms of the, the licenses for, mm-hmm. for growers or businesses and how if that's much more restrictive. And on the one hand, that is, um, it is a much more restrictive process. But it also puts, one, you know, one thing that I know that I, I think a lot of Oklahomans who are taking part in the industry appreciate is it's very, it is very easy to get in. Now, maybe that caps where their profits are. Um, if you've got Oversaturated a market. Yeah, yeah. Every, every block, but you, it doesn't take much to get in and, and to open up your own dispensary right. and try. Well, and that's something we saw Democrats, uh, you know, in their response to, um, Stitt's speech talk about was that it's, you know, we're going to be creating barriers so that only people who already have access to capital can get in on this industry. I mean, and Stitt did say and point to these other states as being more restrictive, um, in in terms of who can get a license, but in, in a big way, the restriction is just that it's going to be so much more expensive. In Oklahoma, it's like twenty five hundred dollars for a, a business license in the medical marijuana industry. In California, I think he cited it's like over a hundred thousand yeah, dollars. Colorado, know, it's, it's even more it's, than that. Maybe yeah, a I mean, it's so expensive, and so that. If that is the only restriction, it's just that it's going to cost more. I think that's where some people are going to come in and say like that, you know, that's problematic if we're trying to have um, economic opportunities for everybody. Because I know in my small town, there are a lot of people that I knew when I was in high school who like, you know, own a dispensary now. And it's like, oh, yeah, well, you probably couldn't have done that if it cost $100,000 for you to get your business license. Right. There are so few of them that they were capped and at some point they ran out and then you had to go buy it from whoever currently owned it to, right. to have access to one. So yeah, I think it's one of those situations where the toothpaste is out of the tube a little bit, but there you can <laughs> yeah. see them trying to shove it back in, you know, yeah. get much of it as they can back in the tube. So we'll, that's another one that to have an eye on just to see where that goes. I mean, that'll be, that won't obviously be just a 2022 session. Thing. Oh, that'll no, be it for be, a long, long yeah, time. Several years. Um, okay, well, is there anything else before we move on to the topics that the governor uh, didn't discuss today? <laughs> or I guess we haven't talked about the McGirt, um, uh portion of the governor's speech today. He brought that up early. Mm-hmm. I was actually, um, they sent out, uh, I think about 15 minutes before his speech started, they sent the speech out mm-hmm. um, to reporters and uh, for us to get a look at. And I was anticipating, I was not, I won't say I was anticipating, but I was curious to see how much of it would be dedicated to McGirt because um, the state of the state tends to be a very hopeful address. We're doing great. You know, there are some right. things that are wrong, but we're fixing them. Um, and on the one hand, uh, whenever Stitt tends to talk about the McGirt decision and its impact is sort of ongoing, you know, what's going on with it, it's not a super hopeful uh, tone just because they they are losing most of these cases. I mean, there there is one sort of moderate victory that they've celebrated lately, and he did bring that up today, which would, um, courts ruled that uh, McGirt would not be retroactive, so the people who are already in prison would be released, which was something that was very real possibility. Um, and so I was curious to see how much he would bring up McGirt. I knew it would be in there to some degree. He did speak about it early, but not perhaps as much as uh, some people thought he might. 
Um, but kind of talk a little bit about that the current sort of like tenor between the governor and tribes and, and how he, when he brings up the McGirt decision, how, how he talks about it. Yeah. I mean, well, so he, he brings it up. I, I mean, he just puts it everywhere. Um, I think he talked about it in his um, speech or comments that he gave on Martin Luther King right, Jr. Yeah, Day. I mean, out, you're right. He talks about it you know, all the time. So he did lead with it, which was interesting, like you said, in the State of the State speech, because he didn't really have any um, concrete policy ideas to deal with McGirt. It was just a lot of um, comments about how McGirt, I think he said it jeopardizes justice. And it's it's a serious problem. And he um, had invited one woman who, um, her son, I believe, had been killed. And then, he, you know, the person who murdered her son, his case was impacted by McGirt. And now she feels like she's not getting justice. So he pointed to, you know, an example that of someone he had brought there. Um, and it was just a lot, I think, of what we've heard before of him saying this is a problem. Um, it's impacting our courts and Oklahoma is a law and order state. And so we need to um, you know, do away with or really pull back and rein in McGirt so that we can be you know, a law and order state once again. Uh, and just right across from where I was sitting across the House chamber were three uh, tribal representatives um, that were there. And so you know, I was watching them you know, as Sid was talking about this and, and they're too far away to see their faces. But I just thought it was so interesting because we've been hearing some reporting that you know Stitt hasn't met with the tribes in several months, maybe even in the, in the past year, and um, there haven't been any real conversations between the two of them. Uh, and you know, we hear one thing from Stitt's office about how uh, McGirt is this horrible thing that has happened, uh, and then we hear from tribes who say, you know, we're spending millions of dollars to beef up our enforcement and and our um, you know legal division so that we can tackle all of this. Uh, and I think you know we, we might just continue to hear those same things that there's this um, almost like two realities that we're living in right now. Uh, and and, and you know, like you mentioned, uh, Stitt did talk about um, his recent legal victories, which is an interesting way, I think, even to phrase it, because I don't know that the tribes would say, like, McGirt needs to be retroactive so we can let all these people out of, you know, prison. I don't know that that's even something that they would, would be interested in. But nonetheless, he did bring that up. Um, and I know the state has spent, they gave, you know, $10 million to the attorney general's office last year to fight federal overreach, which is what they have kind of classified McGirt as. And so far, um, you know, a, a couple million of those dollars have been spent to bring forward, you know, all of these lawsuits that the state um, is trying to, to get through to overturn or severely limit McGirt. Yeah, like you said, that a lot of the... He, he does bring up the McGirt decision and impact every chance he gets, but a lot of it is just um, more focused on how he says it is negatively affecting Oklahoma rather than, I mean, they are really relying on the Supreme Court to just overturn it. I mean, that's, um, they, there's not a lot of, you do see the tribes, like you said, working to find a way to um, increase their role and that they play in, in the justice uh, system in the state now that they've been given this added responsibility uh, back. But um, yeah, when you hear the governor talk about it, it's mainly, you know, the story obviously today that he brought up, he had, like you said, he had that, um, that boy's uh, mother was there. It's a really tragic story of where her son, I think he was 12, 12 or 13, was hit by a drunk driver and killed in 2013. Um, and it's just a good example of sort of the the impact that the McGirt decision has had because that story is a little different than 
what most people think about when they hear about um, McGirt impacting a criminal justice story because they tend to think of it as it's a you know, native person's committed a crime and now they're being let out of prison. And in that case, it was a white person who struck a native child and killed a native child but because it was a native child and it was on Indian land. He has applied um, you know, to be able to be released from prison. There's a, a, statute, a federal statute of limitations in, in a manslaughter case. It's five years, which would be up. Um, and even the Court of Criminal Appeals ruled that that um, in that case, it was tragic, but there's nothing they can do. McGirt should apply to that case. Um, but didn't they also just rule that it wasn't retroactive? So how does that? Yeah, it's a, that's what I mean. <laughs> it, it, there, like, there are so many questions, especially about how, yeah. it, how it relates to, um, to both Native victims and mm-hmm. Native, um, you, you know, uh, people, who, natives who are convicted in court, you know, of crimes. Just, it's interesting to see how it, 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 from the governor's perspective, has become sort of a PR uh, game where he's, it's more of a, you know, there's no policy things that he's bringing up. It's ways to, to fix it. It's complaints and cases where he'll highlight where, you know, there's a perceived injustice in it. It's it's interesting to see that play out and to, to realize that it's really the balls in Supreme Court's uh, court right. right now. Well, and and I mean it's an election year uh, and but to me that's even more interesting why Stick continues to talk about this because I think you know, any recent polls that I've seen where people are asking Oklahomans what are the top issues on your mind? Um McGirt is very low on the list. People are I think kind of over it a little bit and I mean this is just one. I mean definitely the I think the largest thing we've heard Stitt um uh, criticizing the tribes over, I mean, there was the tribal gaming, you know, a couple of years ago that was really big. But I think people are in Oklahoma. There's a lot of goodwill toward the tribes, and so a lot of Oklahomans don't see this impacting their day to day lives. Um, they're just like, well, this is not really the thing on the top of our minds, but it's definitely the thing on the top of Stitt's mind. Yeah, it's it'll, that. You know, I'm sure will not be the last time during the session we hear about uh, <laughs> McGirt. Um, and then we'll talk about one more thing. I, you know, I was. One of the first things, actually the first thing that I did when I, we got a copy of his speech emailed to us was I, I wanted to search COVID, coronavirus, pandemic to see because uh, two things. Last year during um, the State of the State speech, he did mention the pandemic. Now at that point, you know, we're sort of, um, I, I guess at that point, the vaccine rollout had maybe... It's like just happened a month just before. just started, yeah. And so we were just, just starting to see the impact of the vaccines on cases and hospitalizations and deaths. Um, and, and he did bring up in the State of the State spe- speech last year how many people had died at the time and called it, you know, a tragedy or something along those lines. That there was 3,000 people had died. Um, and... And then I noticed that this year he was actually in Tulsa. It was sort of a, a, a Chamber of Commerce deal, um, but he was giving sort of a similar speech in Tulsa. And this was right at the height of the Delta surge that the state faced, which was very, I mean, debilitating the hospitals, um, cases, deaths, everything was very high. And this is right in the middle of that surge, and he didn't mention the pandemic or anything once during it. And so I was curious today, would it come up, you know, would it not? Because it was a very, obviously, I mean, it was an important thing that he did speak about last year. Um, about 3,000 people at that point dying. And now a year later, an additional 10,000 people have died. Uh, we're in the, you know, just now, maybe, hopefully, fingers crossed, coming out of the latest surge. Um, and again, no reference to the pan- pandemic whatsoever um, in uh, the speech. And I just thought it was interesting because he he would highlight 
things like um, Oklahoma's unemployment being low, uh, you know, we're open for business uh, state. Uh, Keep econ- kids in classrooms. Right, kids in classrooms. The economy's doing great. But every one of those things is a result of sort of, I think, what some people would call a public health failure of, um, you know, the way that they fought against uh, masks in school and um, things like that. And so, they're, right, these are all, it, it's something where you take from one hand and, and then you put it in the other hand. And, yes, the economy's doing great. And, it, it, yes, unemployment is low. Um and you can see in, right in the numbers, you know, the impact of that is an additional 10,000 deaths. And uh, the pandemic didn't mention, didn't merit one mention in the speech, which I thought, you know, like I said, they tend to be more hopeful uh, speeches. But it's still such a very real, I mean, we're coming out of record high hospitalizations, you know, record high case numbers, uh, reinfections. I mean, just, you know, it, it has been a long two years for a lot of people. And I was just, I was a little surprised to not see at least some mention of, you know, I thought it was nice of him to bring uh, that, the boy's mother up and give her a moment, you know, to let lawmakers, I'm sure that felt good, you know, to people that she feels like are in her corner. Um, but there are 10,000 other people who've died in the last year and got no mention from the governor. And I just thought that was a, that was a, maybe not completely surprising, but a little surprising that it didn't come up once during the speech. I mean, were you expecting to hear anything about the pandemic? I was personally not. Um, it seemed like for the last six months, really, at least, that Stitt's strategy around PR, the pandemic, is is to not talk about it. Um, it's been, he's talked a lot, I think, about getting back to normal. I mean, that was the messaging we heard from his office even as the pandemic was beginning. You know, at the beginning of 2020 was, you know, we're trying to get back to normal as soon as possible. And so I think for Stitt, that we got back to normal um, once the vaccines were rolled out. You can get vaccinated if you want. If you don't want, fine. Um, we're not going to make you. And we're done talking about it, you know. Uh, and like you just said, I mean, 10,000, what, I guess that's, 13,000 at least people have died. Uh, and so there's a lot of families in mourning. We know hospitals are still struggling. I mean, we had schools just a couple weeks ago shutting down because so many of their uh, staff were sick or quarantining, sure. couldn't come to school. So and we had, I think he mentioned um, hospitals, but he mentioned it as a nursing shortage rather than it, right. the impact and, and of the pandemic well, on hospitals. Part of the reason we have a nursing shortage is that, you know, nurses are um, not getting paid well and they are burnt out. And so they're leaving the field because it's been such a hectic and hard and, you know, tumultuous two years um, during the pandemic. And so I was personally not surprised that he didn't bring it up. I mean, there have been stories where I've seen people reach out to the governor's office. They're writing about you know, the ongoing surges, the pandemic, the impact, um, and asking for comments from the governor. And what are you going to do? What, you know, what do you think about this? And, and the comment is no comment. We're just not going to answer these questions. We're not going to talk about this. This isn't something that we're really interested in, in discussing and, and dealing with um, openly like this. I'm sure the governor's having conversations with hospital leaders behind the scenes or, you know, school administrators, but um, definitely not something that I've seen his office address in a really um, kind of frank, forthright way um, for the last several months. Yeah. I, I, like you said, I, you weren't expecting it. I was hoping to hear something <laughs> about it. I just, there's never, it, every time he brings up McGirt, he talks about how, you know, it's the biggest issue facing Oklahomans. And I just, every time I heard that during, you know, the most recent surge, I just it, thought, you you know, we haven't heard the governor say one thing about, you know, during this latest Omicron surge, about the impact that that, that is having on Oklahomans. And, you know, almost 2,000 people hospitalized. 
uh, every day and, you know, more and more deaths. I mean, three times as many deaths in the last year as before mm-hmm. the speech last year. And it didn't come up once. And yeah. um, I wasn't necessarily expecting it, but I was hoping to hear, you know, some, if, if nothing else, just sympathy to those families who have, um, have had to go through, mm-hmm. you know, the tragedy that like we can't even, you know, imagine at this point. And right. so, well, and, and I, I think it was interesting that, I mean, he didn't bring it up on the side of, you know, um, apologizing to those families. He also didn't bring up uh, anything about vaccine mandates or mask mandates. I mean, we've seen, um, I, I had a story just a couple of weeks ago about um, there are dozens of bills, over 30 bills that lawmakers have filed um, when it comes to preventing private businesses from implementing a vaccine mandate or making it more difficult for those businesses to to have vaccine mandates. Um, a variety of other things, but I mean, that's the tone. And, and there were some, like the House Speaker, he said, I definitely think, you know, we're going to see something come out of that. We're, you know, behind those pushes. It's going to, you know, something's going to happen there. Um, and, and Stitt has been a little bit more quiet about that. Uh, and so that didn't come up either, even though this seems to be um, a legislative priority at the very least. Uh, he, It's really unclear kind of where he stands. And, and we'll see if his um, strategy of just we're done with it. We're moving on. Pandemic no more uh, continues when it comes to um, preventing vaccine mandates. Well, Kayla, all right. It was an interesting day. I'm sure it'll be a very interesting session. We'll be checking in with you a few more times probably before the session's over. I will be here. Okay. All right. I appreciate it. Good talking with you. Thank you.